1: Find a location
0: near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires
0: downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet.
1: In India, I met farmers whose crops have been literally washed away by historic flooding. In America, I have witnessed unprecedented droughts in California, in Greenland and in the Arctic. I was astonished to see that ancient glaciers are rapidly disappearing well ahead of scientific predictions. All that I have seen and learned on my journey has absolutely terrified me. So the question now
0: is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. And how we answer will have a profound impact on the world that we leave behind, not just to you, but to your children and to your grandchildren. As a president, as a father, and as an American, I'm here to say we need to act. We choose to go to the moon. We
1: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
0: Alright, welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And this is Jim Winepress, again. Again! Jim! Three weeks running, right? <laughs> oh, I-, I am so happy to
1: be back again. This is fantastic. Thank you for having me.
0: No, no, it's good. It's gonna be the, the the Chris and Jim show. I think Angie. Uh, I'll make sure she listens to this one. She better get back to see- No, no. I. It's really cool, actually. You know, I because I do mix these and then I listen to them after, and it's been great having you, Jim. So thank you. You, you know, you bring a lot to the podcast, and it, it it's great to have friends that can step in when you know one of us. I know I'm I'm gonna take a vacation here soon, so I'm gonna throw it to Angie and make her you know talk to you and and do some news together. But thank you.
1: Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure. It has been fun recording with you and it's a lot of fun, you know, doing the research throughout the week, finding the stories I want to talk about. It's great all around. Yeah. So, I'll I'll always be here to help out whenever you need.
0: Well, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> and it yeah, you're right. It is because you know, you when you really start paying attention to this, you know, coming across your news feed, there are so many cool stories out there. It's crazy. It's just like Yeah, I mean, I wish we could do this for five hours because there's so much to talk about week in, week out, but Mm -hmm. you know, we each pick three really articles we want to, want to bring to the attention of the listeners. Now I'm going to say this week, Jim and I, you know, we talked before we started recording. It's, it's, it's kind of the not sad news, not great news, but controversial news, right? That's yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So it's, uh, this week in controversial conservation that's what the theme is so we we had some negative then we went positive and now we're talking you know um controversial stuff that are going to get people talking which is good
0: yes yes so it it is a crazy week and we got some really good stories coming up but first i just want to open up with this i literally just read this an hour ago and i have to share it and it it's from life science and the. Title is Honey Badger Takes On an Antelope and It Doesn't Go Well. (laughs) I know I sent you the link. Very appropriate (laughs) (laughs) headline. Yes. And I'm going to post this in the show notes. I'm going to see if I can use this picture, you know, as the theme of the week because it's a honey badger flying through the air. It is taking on a South African oryx. You know, these tenacious, don't care about anything animals. Just, I'm laughing looking at this picture. The honey badger's fine. It ran off eventually, but it just kept going after this bull oryx. And I, I kind of should have warned the bull. You know, honey badgers can tear off the testicles.
1: So I want to know what the reasoning. You know, what was motivating that animal? Was it territory? You know, did it had (laughs) offspring nearby that it was defending? Was it just really confident and wanted a big meal? Like, what was going on in that
0: animal's head? I know, I know. It is so funny. It is so funny. So somebody saw this honey badger taking on this Oryx, and they got a bunch of, of images. It was Dick Theron. It was the Atosha National Park in South Africa. So anyways, it's a funny story. It's The pictures are hilarious. The honey badger ran off. It was fine. It survived. So it's just, oh, I love these things. I love these things. So <laughs> it's, it still makes me laugh. Uh, you gotta love them. And
1: you, uh, you and Angie, sorry to interrupt. You and Angie, no, no, no. Got c- covered honey badger earlier, right?
0: Yeah, it's our fa- It's episode ten, hijinks with the honey badger. By far, one of my favorite episodes. Just they are just crazy, hilarious mm-hmm. behavior is incredible. Their lives, how they survive in Africa is incredible. So I definitely, you know, I've listened to that episode so many times. I, I, I It's my go-to, uh, you know, and it's each week. we, You know, I there's always something great about our episodes we do. Uh, just this week with the Eastern Diamondback Rattlesnake, you know, if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. And then the interview with, with Dr. David Steen, he's amazing. So it's been a good week. It's been a good week. All right. Well, let's jump into it. Story right. number one, Jim. So this week making the new or making the rounds of the news is there was a a young woman who had gone to Africa and paid to shoot and kill a giraffe. And so it made the rounds of social media this woman posing with this beautiful now dead animal that was kind of dark, right? The spots were it was kind of a, a black giraffe they they were calling it. Mm-hmm you know, as they age, I guess some of the spots get darker and, you know, it's again another thing about trophy hunting. Now I, you know, looked at some threads on the internet, some of the comments, what people were saying, and a lot of people were saying, oh yeah, it's sad. And before I get into all this, Jim, I just want to say the anti-hunting, this isn't an anti-hunting rant. So even if our listeners do hunt, I, hey, I understand it's your thing. It's your jam. I'm neutral on it in all honesty. It's, you know, people in my family hunt. I personally don't hunt, but I'm not passing judgment on you. You know, if you've got your deer tags or birds, I mean, fishing, things like I do fish. So it's almost kind of similar. I, it's just this trophy hunting thing has been something I've, I've wrestled with for years. You know, even when I was teaching at the zoo in, in Florida with the students, I would, you know, we'd have discussions about it and it's just, it's something that the idea of paying a premium to shoot an quote unquote excess animal or, you know, a sacrifice, I guess, for the population in theory to me sounds okay to an extent Right in theory, you mm-hmm. know, I still have in theory, I still have a problem with the idea of just killing any endangered species. Like to me, it's just, uh, it, it, it makes me really angry, but okay. you And the big one was this, this black rhino hunt that made the news a couple years ago. And even in radio lab, they had a huge episode on this hunt and how people demonized this guy that, that bid $300,000 to, to kill this black rhino. Right. And they talked about, well, this money goes to help conserve all the other black rhinos in the park. So, Jim, I did a little digging and I'm going to link this. It's a Facebook post. And and again, on the internet, obviously you have to be careful where you reference things. You know, I, like with our website, I could post a lot of stuff and unless I reference it, you know, you want to make sure you're really trusting your your news source. And that's why you know Angie and I we always try to reference where we're doing or I, pro- I provide links. You can click on the link. Like IECN, I link all over all the time. Wikipedia is actually decent these days they've gotten much better but again you want to double check those resources anyways this facebook post is very well referenced i believe it has over 40 references about trophy hunting it's got actually 92 references excuse me (laughs) so i'm gonna i'm gonna link it and it's really worth a read because it really talks about it, it it opens up hunting versus ecotourism you know, which one do you think's worth more to the animals or to the local economy? I don't know, Jim. What do you think? Which one?
1: That that's a great question. I would say ecotourism because I know it's not it's I know it's not yeah. cheap, so people spend good money to go out to places like Africa and to see those animals up close. Um, and I, and more people are likely yeah, to take yeah. part in that than go on a trophy hunting trip.
0: Exactly. That, that's a good point. That's exactly what happened. It's they talk about the benefits of ecotourism that it actually brings like 10 to 1 in income for, you know, a trophy hunt. You're only paying a few people. Some of that, most of that, and we're going to get into the most of that money does not go back into conservation. It's not regulated, but ecotourism is a major driver of jobs and providing money to the local economy there. You know, pe- people paying to, you know, photograph these animals are paying a lot. You know, and the other thing is hunting is very seasonal. So you bring in like you talk about, okay, housing and, and staying at places and, you know, paying for food and things like that. Hunting's very, you know, a few months out of the year where ecotourism is every mm-hmm. day out of the year, right? So that's a, a better benefit to the the population brings in a lot more money. The other thing is, you know, and, and again, like we said, controversial, But then they go in really this trophy hunting. They, they call it the pale male elite. And it's actually run by a lot of rich white Africans, you know, maybe even some Europeans and Americans. It's not the locals there that are running these hunting trips, right? It's this, you know, this South African man that's been doing this for years. He's, he's the one making the money. It's not going into really the local economy like, like that. A lot of hunting groups are promoting this, Then they're promoting this myth that a lot of this money is going to conservation when it's not. The bottom line is, and, and to wrap this up, because again, I could spend, like I say, with a lot of this stuff, but I could spend an hour um, going into it is go back and listen to Allison Benson's interview about rhino relocation. And I asked her her opinion about that. She was there boots on the ground. She provides amazing insight. This is a woman that lived with her by herself with rhinos at months on a time, dedicated her life to these animals, her life to these animals, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And you ask her what she thinks. And she basically summed it up and said, a lot of it's corrupt. It's not regulated. There's so many countries in Africa. It's, you know, you go from Botswana to Kenya to Tanzania to South Africa to Zambia. They all have different rules. It's, there's, there's nothing regulating the money, make sure that money goes back into conservation. So obviously most, I, in my opinion, I think most of them are, it's just a tagline, right?
1: Right. Yeah. And if they're saying this goes towards conservation, just like with any other conservation organization, you know, whether they're doing work in the field or, you know, on the grounds of a zoo or an aquarium, I personally want to see Measurable metrics. I want to know what money is being used for. So the fact that, um, these organizations or these individuals that are offering these hunting trips are saying, oh, don't worry, it goes into conservation. That's, that's a fantastic sound bite, which might, mm-hmm. you know, please certain people. But, but what exactly is it doing? When will we see results of this? You know, like, where, where's your accountability?
0: And I did on our website post a blog, I think, oh, geez, in December or something. And, and I kind of did a write-up on it because I'm just really, you know, I was really torn. But then when talking to Allison and looking into it, yeah, it doesn't go to conservation. They say it does. Now, she did say it, and I don't remember who she said does it. There is one ranch, I believe in South Africa, that does. Does it right. They do pour the money into conservation. They do are very careful on the animals they hunt. So there are, I can't say all 100% are corrupt. That's not true. There are ones that do do it. But, so here's a question, Jim. As scientists, from a scientist perspective, we don't know the impacts. And one of the, the points this article makes is, let's go say, you know, the hunter doesn't want to kill a male lion that's old and scraggly and ribby, you know, dying thin. They're not going to shoot that one, right? They're going to go for the most impressive one that they can find. They're not going to pay 50 grand to shoot a sick, dying animal, right? Right.
1: The the word trophy is there for a reason.
0: Right, right. And you go and you kill this male lion. Now you have a, most likely have a pride without its, its dad or father or protector. A new male comes in. And one of the things that happens with lions, and we'll cover this whenever we cover the species is infanticide. The male lion kills off all the babies, right? So the The females can come into heat quicker, and then he could spread his genetics because he only has like one to two years to to raise his his cubs and family. And we don't know the implications. There there are noticing just in Tanzania, for example, that the tusks of elephants are elephants are either becoming or either not growing tusks because the impressive ones have been killed, so those genes are out of the gene pool, or male lions are having less and less magnificent manes. Because the ones with magnificent manes are the ones that are being killed. So we're seeing genetic impacts, but we don't know long-term impacts on the health of these animals and their populations. So there's so many questions with trophy hunting. And my bottom line is I, my personal opinion is we should never hunt an endangered species, period. They should be banned. You know, that's what CITES is for. And to spread this myth that killing these animals is promoting conservation is bunk. I want the proof, like you said, proof in the pudding, you know, show us where that money's going, show us that animals are in the population really is benefiting. So that's my bottom line. It just, it, it was really irritating this week to see, you know, people perpetuating that myth. And I just wanted to bring it yeah, up. I think, so. I think
1: it's, a, it's a great point. Yeah. If you're going to take part in a controversial activity uh, in the name of conservation, then make sure and have the science and research behind it to back it up. Uh, that, that's what I'm saying, and, that, mm-hmm. and that's coming from a person. Yeah, I, I eat meat, so I'm obviously okay with hunting. Um, I went fishing with my buddy today. I, I didn't fish. I just, I just sat there and, and mm-hmm. enjoyed the outdoors. But I, I'm with I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Like back it up, and it's just a real slippery slope of saying one thing, but really doing another thing, and then all we have
0: is hunting, trophy hunting, right? Yeah. I mean, it, and you know, hunting deer, I understand that I've eaten venison, you know, and I actually liked it. It was good. Venison sausage is delicious and we've removed a lot of the natural predators. So calling the herd, you know, for, for deer and things like that makes sense. It's just the reality of what we live in today. My point is going and shooting really predators and this giraffe and elephants and Cape buffalo and some of these other major species just for a trophy to me is just, uh, anyways. Right. Yeah. go. I don't know. Go shoot pictures.
1: <laughs> don't shoot. <Yes>. both. shoot <laughs> pictures.
0: <laughs> or, or, you know, I was thinking like, can we turn it around and have them shoot like tranquilizer darts and knock the animal down? Then they can actually go up and like touch it while it's alive and take all their pictures and their selfies. And, Things like that, you know? I don't <laughs> not know. not ideal, but at least the animal eventually <laughs> gets up, right? Yes, yes. yes. Something like that mm-hmm. I would support. You know, anyways. All right, so that was my major. The, the other ones are, are a little controversial, but won't take quite as long.
1: Uh, well, you know, since you touched upon that, let's talk about something else serious going on um, in Africa mm-hmm. in terms of death. So mm-hmm. recently Kenya's Minister for Tourism And wildlife announced that the country was going to fast track a law to make it, to make the illegal hunting of wildlife, a capital offense. And that would mean it would be punishable by the death penalty. So, I mean, so I'm not here basically to say I support this or I don't support this. That just like you said, this could be a five hour long podcast about ethics and this and that. (laughs) Um, But that's a very intense and strong stance to take on mm-hmm. protecting endangered species. And so, because it is, because as you've got, you know, if you go on social media, you'll probably see a million people sharing it saying this is fantastic, and a million people sharing it saying mm-hmm. this is too far. Um, so, on top of this statement, right. it got even more dramatic when CITES, which stands for the Convention um, on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, mm-hmm and they're a respected authority on the trade of wildlife, you know, and just all around biodiversity, Mm -hmm. they retweeted Mm -hmm. this announcement and paired with it the hashtag, hashtag serious about wildlife crime. And so by doing this, um, critics have argued that this world body is endorsing Kenya's policy. They didn't just make Mm -hmm. up this hashtag for this one situation. The hashtag was actually created three years ago by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime for the World Wildlife Day campaign. And it said, it's time to get serious about wildlife crime. Um, and it was meant to be used yeah. as a call to raise awareness about wildlife crime and highlight the critical need to step up efforts in tackling uh, the groups involved. So by kind of pairing those phrases, you know, between an earlier campaign and then this um, hot topic, it seems as if CITES it sounds like that they're supporting that yeah and right that's a real strong statement to take um so like i said there have been people coming to the defensive CITES arguing that retweeting the article can't be taken as an endorsement of kenya's policy and then you know the other side said how could you how could you support this you you know saying oh these these people deserve to die that's
0: right it's you know oh it's the we've been doing this what we're going on almost a year now and with the podcast and thinking globally, looking at wildlife trafficking. I just, I just keep thinking about pangolins, right? Right. So some, you know, somebody that's poor in Africa knows they can sell a pangolin for let's say a hundred dollars American, you know, cause that's what they end up getting. They don't get the $10,000 or whatever that the animal will, will finally command. They, they're that's the middleman, the sellers, that things like that, and you're starving and you're trying to make money for your family. So you know, I know Angie and I have said a couple times, like, how do you condemn them to death? I, I that's it's it's a tough issue, but the it was just last year, wasn't it, Jim? Where they the 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 largest trafficker in ivory, it was like a Ty, Taiwanese woman and man in Kenya. Oh, they arrested wow. them. I. I'd have to look it back. Maybe I can link the article if I can find it in the show notes. You know, she was like the, they were the ones running the racket. Right. Mm -hmm. So do they deserve the death penalty for that? Because thousands of elephants have died because of them. I, you know, it's, it's a tough issue. It's, I like the hard stance, but you know, on the other hand, I could see where people would be a little bit like, wow. Okay. You know, you know, fighting fire with fire or, or whatever you're doing. But yeah, yeah, that, that's controversial for sure. Yeah. And, you know,
1: thinking back to how we talk about poaching and poachers at the, the zoo I work at, a lot of people look at a poacher as, you know, like some Disney supervillain who just takes, takes mm-hmm. pleasure in hurting animals, where, you know, for the mo- most part, if you dive into most poaching situations or unsustainable deforestation situations... The people who are doing that are doing it out of basic desperation, like you said, to feed their family and meet their basic needs and, you know, take no pleasure when interviewed, take no pleasure in doing what they do, but they're going to do what it takes to feed their family and you can't hold that against them, you know, and a good conservation organization will work with them to provide them with the means to get by and give them incentive to protect that wildlife. So there is a whole lot of that going on. Um, and not to oversimplify and and say like, right. oh there's this and that group, but then there are those poaching organizations, especially going on in Africa with Rhino Horn, with Elephant Tusks, that is just very well funded. They've got technology, they've got their plans, mm-hmm. and they're doing it for the sheer profit of it. Right. So yeah, yeah. you know, where do you draw that line? Right,
0: right. And I, I just you know, one thing I follow too is Jane Goodall is her roots and shoots. I think that's one of the things that, that she's out there doing is trying to help locals. You know, and I follow them all over social media. So, you know, shout out to them. They do a lot of work, good work in trying to, you know, sustainable agriculture and education and improving communities. So that's a really good organization to, to support. You know, I I should probably try to get someone on that organization on the, on the podcast, but yeah, yeah, that's pretty, pretty extreme. Well, and then, like I said, just read this morning, you know, uh, these poachers in South Africa got eaten by lions. So. Yeah, you know, uh, poor them. <laughs> that when that happens, I'm okay. <laughs> <It's
1: funny. laughs> well, you, you know, you know they're, they're out there. They must know that risk. Anyone goodness. who's running around, you yes. know, air, territories that are with lions, you have to know you might come across one.
0: I just feel bad for the lions because I don't want them to go hunt them because they killed humans. You know, that's usually what happens. Uh, but, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's you know.
1: just, just all sorts of issues.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the Cape Buffalo I'm rooting for. You know, they, they've balled more hunters <laughs> than anybody. <laughs> all right. So keeping on this controversial, this one, again, all this hunting of wildlife. So this one I had to bring up and it would have tr- trumped the other one if it, it wasn't making such a big thing with uh, that giraffe picture. But this was the headline is Interior Department Plans to Let People Kill Endangered Red Wolves. And I know we just did the red wolves a little bit over a month ago. We interviewed Autumn Lindy from... The science museum there in North Carolina, these animals were reintroduced. You know, uh, it's been a 30 year effort to reintroduce them into North Carolina. And there's a lot of politics involved because private landowners don't want red wolves. People are scared to death of red wolves, which is mind boggling. And so the interior department with all this deregulation that's going around the United States right now, wants to allow private landowners to kill the wolves that come onto their property. So it's part of the politics that's going on there. The right now, the alligator river national wildlife refuge has about 35 red wolves that roam a five County area. And it's the only place where they're safe right now. They're, they said in the, in the article they're talking about, and I know Autumn mentioned this and Angie and I mentioned this in the, the red wolf, the last Howl, the red wolf episode, they're actually looking to relocate them somewhere else in the United States, but this is the most critically endangered or what I think it is the most critically endangered mammal in the United States. And it doesn't get any press, any headlines. And now people that they, they, they want to let them shoot them, you know, it's just insane. It's insane. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is just, you, you know, when
1: I think about, you know, all the animals um, that are threatened by, human conflict, human behavior and any animals, you know, uh, that get a bad rep. I think of sharks and I think of wolves <laughs> the, the, that species just has so many yeah, negative yeah. reputations that are so unnecessary and inaccurate. I, I, I feel for the species and I, I feel for all the people who are doing so much work to try to conserve them and spread accurate information. And that's, mm-hmm. that's just such a, a a blowback for that species and all, all that work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's like, you know, the fish and wildlife service is not, uh, you know, they're going back and forth. I know that's what, like with the interview with autumn, you know, there's just so many politics there and all these organizations suing each other. And I will say this, the defenders of wildlife, that organization we highlighted, they are leading the charge and trying to fight this you know there's save the red red wolf as a foundation the wildlands network there's a bunch of them that are that are fighting this in court but it's just i i don't know jim i mean sometimes i'm thankful i'm in new zealand when i see what's going on back home i just the politics of it you know deregulating clean water deregulating protections for animals deregulating protections for our, our national treasures is just, it's insane. It's insanity. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I
1: agree. I've, I had the opportunity to work with uh, this species a little bit, and these are not aggressive, large carnivores that we should be afraid of. You know, they are, oh. they're small. And oh. you know, if you use the most basic common sense in your behavior around your house, with your, with your pets, with your belongings, they serve, they will not be any threat to you or anything you're involved with.
0: I know, I know, I know, I know. It's, it's maddening. It's maddening, but education, right? That's what, that's what why we do what you and I do. It's, it's education. Get the so. information out there. All right. So what's your next, anything controversial? I don't think so. I think your next one's actually pretty uh, good. No,
1: no, I, I got, you know, I got that right out of the way. So um, yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk about some really cool technology um, right now that is being utilized by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And they are about to send out a flotilla of sail drones to the Arctic and Pacific for several Earth science missions. So since... 2014, NOAA has been uh, partnering with this organization called Sail Drone Inc. And I'm looking at a photo of a sail drone right now. And mm-hmm. it's exactly what it sounds like. It, it looks like it's this red. Let's see, let me bring this up real quick. It is. Yeah. It looks like a little red kayak um, with a red thick sail on top. And they're, com- they're completely unmanned. Uh, and they are powered by wind and solar panels, so using some really cool, um, great um, renewable energy resources. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are getting ready to launch 11 of these unmanned sailing vehicles. So NOAA and SailDrone are are preparing to uh, launch out the first batch of these 11 unmanned sailing vehicles uh, this week um, as part of NOAA's expanding use of cutting-edge technology to advance fisheries, weather, and climate science. Um, Mm -hmm. And they've already done this a little bit. Um, and these, these vessels have traveled about 50,000 miles on different NOAA missions. And that's about twice the distance it takes to circumnavigate the earth. So that's crazy. that shows that these are reliable and they're durable. They can take on uh, the ocean and travel that distance. And there are um, right. about 18 sensors on each drone. Um, and they're capable of collecting measurements such as air and water temp, um, wave height, salinity, carbon dioxide concentration and fish abundance and the presence of other marine mammals. And so they've got th- awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's really cool. It's just neat That's seeing this awesome. new technology use the science because these, these vehicles will be able to go places and stay there for a certain amount of time that, you know, a, a manned boat just can't go. So this is right, really cool. Right. Um, they've got three goals. Uh, the first one is to gain a better understanding of West coast fisheries. They'll be taking fish acoustic surveys, which is really neat. So they're going to be um, collecting data uh, by using a sensor that uses sound waves that bounce off the backs of fish to record the abundance of fish. That is just such a really cool way to figure out what's going on under the waves. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. 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 They're going to be studying the populations of sardines, anchovies, and hake. Um, And they're one of the most valuable fisheries on the West coast. And, if it's successful, because they're going to compare the data collected from these sail drones to previous missions, they're going to see if using these sail drones can improve the efficiency and accuracy of fish stock estimates. Um, and then they can use that data um, as a way to create and enforce um, policies and decision making uh, in terms of fishing rules and limits. So very cool using science and data to make informed decisions about how we utilize yeah, our fishery yeah. stocks um, because... Everyone loves seafood, which you and I have talked about in uh, previous pods.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it's yeah. also
1: going to be monitoring change in the Arctic. So one thing that everyone is concerned about is, you know, with um, there being less ice, there's going to be more open water. People are really interested in how this ecosystem is going to be impacted by this new human um, presence um, and they're going to be studying the effect of ocean acidification um, on marine species as well as the distribution of another important fish food for us, Arctic cod. Um, and then, you know, those mm-hmm. other animals that inhabit those areas, uh, so many different species of seabird, um, some of my favorite ring seals, narwhals, and balutas. Uh, lastly, they're going to be tracking weather in the tropical Pacific. Um, so the two sail drones, because they have these all divided on their own missions. They'll be gliding about 2,000 miles mm-hmm. to the uh, Tropic Pacific Ocean, and they're going to um, survey ocean and atmospheric data, including changes in ocean temperatures and ocean carbon dioxide concentrations. So, really getting a lot of valuable mm-hmm. measurements on what's going on.
0: Yeah, is awesome. They do such great mm-hmm. work. They just, you know, and again, talking about what's going on in the United States, You know, it's the, their budgets are getting slashed and they do mm-hmm. such important work. You know, I, you know, if you're, and I, and I honestly, I, I, it's probably minuscule. Our listeners on the podcast maybe don't believe in climate change. I, I probably hope to think none of our listeners do. I don't know if you do, if you don't believe in climate change, it's, it's happening. Please look into it, look into the science because it's there. And I would think the United States would want to answer that question once and for all, you know, why, why? Yeah. We know it's all political. It's political theater and it's playing off people's fears. Climate change is a real thing. It's happening. So this is awesome that that they're going to go out and collect more data so, to help us understand what's going on. So yeah. Bravo to them. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let me go to a Controversial. (laughs) This one's a little controversial, but things are looking up in the States. It's a little progressive, and that's with uh, talking a little bit about marijuana in California. So the news isn't good for animals, per se. And this headline is, sprawling marijuana farms are driving this adorable little creature to extinction. So, uh, again, not an anti-MJ rant. It's just... Mm -hmm. How things change, and it has impacts on the ecology. So, what's going on? So, California, with their legislation against you know promoting marijuana, I guess, or, or lessening, relaxing, you know, allowing uh, the sale of marijuana, you were seeing marijuana farms, you know, popping up all over the place. Mm-hmm. Well, with that is in in Humboldt County in California, which is beautiful. it It's really, it's kind of like the hippie area of California. I mean, there's a lot of hippie areas in California, but you know, up on, you know, the, the Northern part of the state and the mountains and the trees, there is the Humboldt Martin. So it's a subspecies of the American Martin. So it's a, it's a mustelid kind of like a small weasel and they, you know, their habitat, obviously California's, Just huge, huge country or huge state where a lot of people live. So their habitat's been shrinking. So this Humboldt Martin, they they kind of describe it like a honey badger, which is funny. that we opened (laughs) up talking about the honey badger that they actually will go in and, you know, get into uh, bees and and eat the honey and they're tough and they're, they're little tough little guys. They are heading towards the endangered species list because they think there's about a hundred of them left to one to 200 of them left. And it's a subspecies of the American Martin. Anyways, these farms are using rat bait or rat poison because mice and rats go in and chew on their equipment, you know, their, their pipes and things like that, that they use to to help grow these plants. Now the Martins turn around or the Humboldt Martins turn around and eat the rat and mice, and so this anticoagulant poison that are in the, the rat and mice blood, now the martens get it and they die. So it's really knocked down the population there. It's this population's heading towards extinction. At least now it's getting some, uh, a spotlight on it. You know, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife are starting to work towards their saving them. So now at least they're aware of it. So that's the good news is you know and i imagine cannabis growers a lot of them you know probably are surprised or would be against you know these animals dying so i don't know they just to me me, it just seems like a lot of like i don't know maybe big business is getting into it now but it just seems like they would care about the environment and grow their crops without killing off the wildlife i you know it would be nice but um You know, this, this, uh, this poor little Martin, I'm going to keep my eyes on it because it's so cute. No, again, I'll, I'll link this in the show notes. So, you know, you you bring up any
1: topic regarding, uh, legal marijuana and it's going to be a hot topic. Um, people are going to have strong opinions about this, but, but honestly, this doesn't seem like. A new situation. I mean, any type of food that becomes popular, like a new type of kale or, you know, superfood where all of a sudden there's a market for it. Mm -hmm. um, People are going to start utilizing land to grow it and they're going to want to keep pests away. So I feel like this isn't the first time something like this has happened of pesticides, poisons, you know, and other animals falling victim that aren't the intended animal for this.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, they're just trying to keep the rodents off their stuff and... Unfortunately, it's like with the prairie dog. If you go back to the black footed ferret episode, we did their story. It was poisoning of prairie dogs. You know, the farmers and ranchers wanted to get rid of prairie dogs. And unfortunately, it almost drove the black footed ferret to extinction. This is kind of a similar situation. Now we did bring the black footed ferret back. I mean, they still have a lot of challenges, you know, pretty inbred things like that. But thankfully, you know, from 15 to a couple thousand today. You know, so as long as uh, we, we, we keep uh, being aware of this stuff and we can hopefully have these populations rebound.
1: So yeah. just like with, you know, hunting, there is a sustainable way to do that. And that is the same for pest control and pest management. There is an ethical mm-hmm. and efficient way to do that in which the targeted species is affected and there aren't any unnecessary casualties of other species being affected negatively.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah 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 all right so what's the uh the the final story that you came up with today all right
1: i'm really excited about this one um so uh, utah's hogle zoo this is a zoo i actually spent four years working out west in salt lake city so it holds a, a very special place in my heart they are home to two white rhinos uh princess who is 39 and then uh george who's 41 um now and i remember this occurring when i was there every spring going into summer princess would get a little irritation, um, a little redness, a little um, swelling around her eyes from allergies. Mm -hmm. And then it was exaggerated a little bit just by pests, by flies flying around her. Um, I Mm -hmm. remember treating Mm -hmm. it with cold water, just making sure that they were clean fly spray and all that. The zoo has been working for the last year to get a custom made mask to cover her face Mm -hmm. and protect those, her two eyes from, from those flies, which is really gonna help get that situation under control. And, and this is important just because, um, zoos such as Hogel, um, play such a significant role in public education and they support conservation initiatives across the globe. And I know for a fact they do a lot with raising awareness and funds for rhino conservation. And going hand in hand with that, you know, it's a zoo's responsibility To provide animal care for their animals to such an extent where the animals are experiencing a high degree of welfare. And this goes right into it. And definitely, you know how popular white rhinos are. They're a charismatic species. People want to see them. They recognize them. Um, And they make, they're really strong ambassadors for their wild counterparts. So the zoo partnered with AA Callister, which is a local business right in uh, Utah, to make this mask. And they worked as well with Houseware Ireland um, and work with a supplier in China to get the right pattern to fit this animal's face. And if you can't think Mm -hmm. of, if you can't picture of how this is going to look, have you ever driven by a farm and seen those masks on those horses?
0: Right. Um, So it it looks just like that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it looks like they're blindfolded, um, but they can see right through it. And so, so first with the challenge of getting that created, I know from my experience working with rhinos, cause I worked with George. I trained with him for a little while and it took me three months to get that animal to target and to mm-hmm. listeners who don't know what targeting is. You yeah. basically take a stick with a ball at the end um, and you ask the animal to put their nose to it. It's a real um simple tool training tool, but it's a real important tool because it, it helps with body positioning and sh- communicating to the animal where you want them to go. Um, mm-hmm. It took him three months. So rhinos, are never in a rush to learn anything new. Let's say that. No, no. And they don't have the best eyesight, especially a 39-year-old animal. So it took almost a year to train this. And when you are training something like this, you take the full behavior and you break it down into small steps. And you train the animal step by step. You can can get fancy and call it an approximation. But basically, Mm -hmm. it's just, you know... Get, you know, going so far, we're successful. Okay, let's push it a little bit more and we're successful until you have the full behavior complete. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you want to make sure that, um, princess was introduced to this face mask in a positive light. It was never scary. It was never an adversive for her. Um, and this took a long time and the keepers would just show it to her and then she'd be rewarded when she had a calm response to it. The keepers would move it around. The keepers would put it on their heads, basically just Conveying to this animal, no matter what this mask is doing, you know, where it is, it's a good thing when it's around. And right, they right. they worked up to draping it over her and then eventually to the point where they were able to get it on her. And like I said, reinforcing her the entire time saying, this is good. You know, this is completely okay. Making it a positive part um, of her life. And while they were successful at this, they also had to desensitize George to it as well because... Seeing Princess in this face mask would yeah. be a big adjustment for him. <laughs> so the training went for him as well, just yes, be comfortable yes. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I like that a lot. Um, I obviously have an interest in animal care and in training, and like I said, um, mm-hmm. maintaining a quality of life for all of our animals. And I just wanted to give a shout out to those keepers who worked so hard to train this animal for such an unusual but an important behavior, yeah. and great
0: job. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, it, I could just understanding. Just how to train a horse, you know, it, it, it takes a long time to desensitize them. And these are animals that for thousands of years have been chosen for their calm demeanor. So you take a wild rhino and say, Hey, I'm going to put this on your face. (laughs) They're like, Oh, no, you're not, (laughs) especially a a rhino. All right, Jim. So my species of the week, this one was really cool that came across and it's called a she, and and, and it kind of goes with the. The week this week we had with snakes, they found in India this shield tail snake. And this thing is really cool. So a new species of shield, shield tail snake was described. And it is named Europeltis, buf, buf, uh, Europeltis bupathy. And it's actually, you know, it's really interesting. The the student that found it, I think it's a graduate student. He named it after his late professor who passed away a few years ago in an accident. So they discovered this shield snake. And I just, you know, again, like I talked about this week in snakes, there's 3,600 species of snake. This one is really unique looking. So again, I will post the photo on the show notes, but the shield or what it makes it look like is this special ring of scales around its tail. It's just bizarre. It's really cool looking animal. It's really unique. So this student has described a new species of shield snake. And again, you know, it's cool. Good discovery this week. Very cool. Um, Now the species I'm going to talk about,
1: except the the one that you described that snake is impressive for how it looks. Now, the one I'm going to talk about Mm. the Swires snailfish I'm going to be honest. It's not that impressive looking. Um, It's actually been described as a small tadpole-like fish measuring a little over four inches. So physically, you know, we're all beautiful on the inside. But on the outside, this fish isn't too noteworthy. But its physiology and where they found it is what makes it so incredible. Um, Because this animal Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was located um, between depths of 22,000 and 26,000 feet Um, in the Western Pacific Mm. Mariana Trench. And it's the fact that this animal can survive uh, that far down, it it just blows my mind. I personally, I love reading about those those deep sea ecosystems and how those animals and those Mm -hmm. ecosystems thrive. The the little kid in me absolutely loves that. I just think that's the craziest thing. Their scientific name is Sudolo Paris Soiree. And the only reason I can say that to all our listeners okay. is because Chris talked me through it before we started recording, so I'm not even going to. It's I'm not even going to pretend either. as if I just sounded that out and got it right. So thank you, Chris. <laughs> quiet, quiet, quiet. Uh, it was named in honor of one of the officers of the HMS Challenger mission that discovered the Mariana Trench in 1875, which I think is pretty cool. And uh, this, the research that led to this discovery is through the Smithsonian Institution and the United States National Museum of Natural History. So like I said, it's a small tadpole-like yeah. fish, um, pretty small, and large numbers of the species were attracted to the traps that they baited with mackerel. So that's how they were able to collect them and identify them. Oh, it's, D- despite yeah. its tiny size, it's crazy, yeah. um, it appears as far as they know to be one of the top predators in the community that it lives in, um, in the deep sea. It just shows that they're, hmm. I mean, there as of right now, there's always more to discover, but they're not seeing anything... Thriving and thriving down this deep, so you know the the four inch long fish is the apex predator of this ecosystem. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Um, no, it's just yeah. You think about the it's uh, just that life finds a way, right? You know, there we go, Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. And it's you know that's why I think you know when we finally travel, like I do some astronomy as an amateur, and you know we're gonna find. Things elsewhere in some of these extreme environments that it's not going to, you know, I'm not saying there's aliens like us walking around. I don't know. But, you know, I think, you know, the moons of Saturn, there may be microbial mm-hmm. life because we're finding in the depths of the ocean with no sunlight at life. Right. This fish lives and thrives down there. And they live off the energy or the heat vents, things like that. So, anyways, as a scientist, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. Yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, that's really great. All right, Jim. Well, it was a interesting week. not Not too sad. Not too happy. But it's well, it's a, it's a know, lot to talk
1: have about. You. Yeah, we we hope our listeners have a lot of research to do. Um, come yeah. come to your own opinions and perspectives on things. Just happy to get that information out. Yeah. There.
0: Yeah, and you know, share on Facebook. You know, message us. Let us know. You know, if if you have different opinions, but, you know, let me know. Like if if, cons- if hunting and conservation, if there really is money going to the animals and it's really benefiting, I want that data so I can spread the knowledge. That's all. You know, as as much as I try not to let my personal opinions get into the show, I at least deal in facts, mm-hmm. right? So you know, I deal in, in data and information hopefully you know that's why we keep bringing this stuff and you know thank you Jim again another great episode you know definitely going to have you back again as soon as we can fantastic
1: no it's it's always great to contribute to this podcast Um, if I'm not preparing to speak with you on it I'm listening to your episodes so really looking forward to what you guys have coming and I look forward to being on the show again
0: All right. well thanks take care right. you too